Good evening. Good evening. I hope everyone is doing well tonight. Um, in case I don't get another chance to say so publicly with everyone gathered here, uh, I guess we are doing a Q&A after my sermon, but uh, nonetheless, I want to let you know how very much I have enjoyed being with you these past couple of days. I truly have. It's just been a joy to be with you. Really enjoyed getting to visit with some of you and getting to know you just a little bit. And um, the testimonies that I've heard have been so very encouraging. And uh, it's just been a joy. Thank you so much. And uh, Kyle, brother, thank you for your invitation. It's uh, been an honor, brother. It truly has. It truly has. Okay, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, as we gather one more time, I guess the final time tonight, we pray that, that our hearts would be receptive to the truth of your word. We pray that our minds would be informed. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us and that we would be more conformed in the image of your Son. Father, instruct us now from your word. Help us to understand what your word says about your glory in repentance, in what true repentance is. Father, may we be fed tonight through the richness of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit do his work of illumination. In these things we'd ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 5 through 11. We began uh, the conference. My first message was kind of an overview of Soli Dea Gloria. And then the next message I talked about God's sovereignty uh, God, excuse me, God's glory in sovereignty, and then God's glory in suffering. And tonight we'll be talking about God's glory in repentance, what true repentance is. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. May God bless the reading of his word. So just a, a little bit of background information so that this text will make more sense to us. We need to know contextually what is going on, the setting here. Paul, on his second missionary journey, came to the city of Corinth thoroughly pagan city, but he preached the gospel. A number of people were converted, and Paul planted a church there in the city of Corinth. And Paul spent about a year and a half, 18 months, with these new believers trying to disciple them, 
grow them up, um, founded the church, and when he felt like they had reached a level of spiritual maturity sufficient enough to carry things on in the church without him in his absence, Paul then left Corinth and went to other destinations to preach the gospel. Well, Paul may have left a little bit too soon because apparently the Corinthians were not, uh, not quite ready to be without Paul because after Paul left, Paul got reports of extreme immorality in the church of Corinth. There was all kinds of stuff going on. There was all kinds of sin, uh, gross sin. There were factions within the church, uh, a lot of divisions, a lot of arrogance, uh, bragging about who had which spiritual gift and who had it more strongly than the other and all kinds of stuff was going on in the church in Corinth. And so Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth addressing some of these things uh, that letter is lost to us. We don't, we don't know what that letter exactly said. But uh, while Paul was in Ephesus, after he wrote that first letter, and really what we have, what we call 1 Corinthians. Okay, this might be a little confusing. <laughs> so Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have. Then he wrote another letter, which is what we call 1 Corinthians, which really should probably be called 2 Corinthians, but it's the only one we have, so we call it first. He ended up writing four letters total to the Corinthian church. So uh, he wrote that first letter, and then he was in Ephesus. And while in Ephesus, after he wrote that first letter, he received even more reports of trouble in the form of divisions among the brethren. And so the Corinthians actually wrote a letter to Paul and asking him about various issues, uh, marriage, divorce, uh, food sacrifice to idols, speaking in tongues, all of these kinds of issues. And so Paul wrote them what we call today 1 Corinthians answering their letter. Letter. So with me so far? Okay. All right. And Paul wrote this while he was in Ephesus. So in the meantime, some self-appointed apostles crept up in the church. False apostles, men who just called themselves apostles, they appointed themselves to be apostles, but they really were not. Aren't you glad we don't have any more of that going on today? You know, glad we don't have anybody today calling themselves an apostle who's really not an apostle. Tongue in cheek there, obviously. But that's what was going on. But these false apostles began attacking the Apostle Paul's character. And they began to try to turn the church of Corinth against the Apostle Paul. Turning their opinion against him. So causing all kinds of division and consternation. Paul heard about this and it grieved him. It grieved him deeply because the Corinthians were beginning to believe the lies of these false apostles. And Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them dearly. He thought of them as, as his children, his spiritual children. He loved them deeply. And so when the Corinthians began to turn against the Apostle Paul, and they were beginning to believe the lies of these false apostles, it grieved Paul. It grieved him terribly. So Paul left Ephesus when he got word of this. Paul left Ephesus and he went to Corinth. I wish I had a map up here to show you exactly how big of an endeavor this was. Uh, to go from Ephesus to Corinth, you either had to cross the Aegean Sea, which was an eight-day boat trip if you were going to go by water, or to go by land, you had to go around the Aegean Sea, which was an 800-mile trip. 800 miles is a long ways today. It was a very long ways 2,000 years ago. But Paul was so concerned about the health of the body and these people that he, he loved so much. He left Ephesus and he went to Corinth to confront the, the false apostles and to speak truth to the Corinthians and try to fix things in the church. Well, when Paul got there, he was not received well at all. The false apostles 
at least one, maybe more, but at least one of them stood up and mocked him, opposed him to his face, ridiculed him, turning the Corinthians against Paul. And apparently the Corinthians, from what Paul wrote in this letter, the Corinthians did not stand up for him. They just went along with the false apostles. And by not opposing the false apostles, the Corinthians were complicit in their sin too. By not defending Paul, they were complicit in the sin of the false apostles. Romans 14, 22, blessed is the man who is not condemned by what he approves. The Corinthians, by not defending Paul, apparently approved of this. And so Paul had to leave Corinth and he left them. He, he was basically run out of Corinth. And he went back to Ephesus, completely broken, completely dejected, heartbroken over the way in which the Corinthians treated Paul. Absolutely heartbroken. We really, when you read through Paul's letters, you, various things he says, you really sense how much he loved these people and they completely rejected him. It absolutely crushed Paul. So Paul returned to Ephesus hoping that some time would pass and the passage of time would bring the Corinthians to their senses. He was hoping and praying that the Corinthians would see that these false apostles did not truly care about them. And that is one of the hallmarks of a false teacher. As Jude says, false teachers do not care about you. They do not care about God. They care only about themselves. So Paul left them and went to Ephesus, hoping that they would come to their senses. And in Ephesus, Paul wrote what is called the severe letter that Paul references in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. You can look that up. But he references the severe letter, the painful letter, the tearful letter, depending upon your translation. This was a letter of rebuke. And this is a letter that we don't have. It's been lost. So we don't, we don't know exactly what this letter said. We can kind of fill in the blanks with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians about that letter. But he sent, he sent this letter back to Corinth via Titus. Paul could not bring himself to go back to Corinth. He was too crushed and he just couldn't put himself through that again. So he wrote this painful letter, this severe letter, a letter of rebuke, a letter of confrontation, a letter of correction. He gave it to Titus and he sent Titus on that long journey to take that letter to the Corinthians on his behalf. And so Titus left with this letter and Paul's thoughts were absolutely consumed about what was going to happen when the Corinthians got this letter from Titus. How would the letter be received? How would Titus be received? So Paul was supposed to wait on Titus at Troas after Titus came back from Corinth. Paul had no idea how this letter of rebuke would be received. Would it make things worse? Would it make things better? He didn't know. He didn't know. So that's the context. So let's pick up here with verse 5. Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Conflicts without, persecution. Hardships. You remember the list of hardships that I read, I think it was what, last night in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, I won't read all of that again, but you remember that long list of hardships. Paul said that he was, in, he was in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. He was uh, beaten times without number, five times. He was beaten, he was whipped by the Jews with 39 lashes. Uh, dangers in the country, dangers in the city dangers from robbers, uh, all of these outside conflicts. And then he says, fears within. I don't believe this was fears of persecution. Paul had had plenty of that. But fears about the health of the church. Fears about what was happening to the church back in Corinth. Remember also in 2 Corinthians 11, that long list of 
of hardships. Paul said, on top of all of these things, remember, on top of all of these things, I have, I have on me the daily concern, the daily pressure, my concern for the churches. That was the fears within. He was concerned for his brothers and sisters back in Corinth. We see this in other places as well, Paul's concern for the churches. And it's interesting. Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says to the Galatians, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You see the worry, the concern that he had for the Galatians. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, Paul says to the Thessalonians, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You see the concern, you see the, the anguish that Paul had for the churches that he had planted and he had ministered to. He loved them. He loved these people. And it's telling, I believe, and it's really transparent on the part of the, Paul, the Apostle Paul when he talks about how he worried about these things, how he, he had anguish. And yet, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote so beautifully and profoundly on the sovereignty of God. This is the man who wrote Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1, towering testimonies to the sovereignty of God. And yet, even he had concern, even he had anguish. He worried over the health of the churches the spiritual well-being of those who had been converted under his own preaching. But look at verse 6. Verse 6, Paul says, But God, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. But God. Two very, very powerful words. But God. If ever a man had a reason to be depressed... It would have been the Apostle Paul. And Paul, don't miss this, Paul refers to himself as depressed. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul describes himself as depressed. You remember Paul also said, If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot. A lot can be against us. A lot of people can be against us. But what Paul meant by that is that no one or no thing, no enemy of the gospel, no demon in hell can be against us in such a way that they gain complete and total victory over us. They can oppose us. They can cause us persecution. They can cause us hardship. They can even cause us concern. So there's a lot that can and will be against you and me as Christians. But nothing can be against us in such a way that it gains victory over us. Remember last night we were talking about John the Baptist whose faith wavered. Asaph in Psalm chapter, Psalm chapter 73 whose faith wavered got right up to the cliff, right up to the edge of the cliff and he stared into the abyss of apostasy. He says, my feet almost slipped. My steps came close to stumbling. He got right up to the edge. But God reached out and pulled him back from the abyss. Paul got right up to the edge. He calls himself depressed. But God. But God who comforts the depressed. It's not unusual, dear ones, to go through times of mental anguish. It's not unusual for us as Christians to go through times of mental anguish. Martin Luther went through valleys. Charles Spurgeon went through valleys. Paul here in 2 Corinthians called it depression. So it's not unusual. But notice where Paul's comfort comes from. God, who comforts the depressed who comforts, uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus. 
He is the God of all comfort. We read that last night as well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He is the God of all comfort. So where did Paul get his comfort in his anguish, in his trials, in his persecution, in his concern for the churches? God. God. He is the God of all comfort. And I'll reiterate what I said last night. If you are going through a trial, if you are going through a time of hardship, if you are going even through a season, a season as Paul did, of depression, you will not find help in a bottle. You will not find help in a pill. You will find help in God. His grace is sufficient for us. That is the testimony of Scripture. That is the testimony of the, the word that is theonoustos, God breathed. If you are going through a time of depression, dear friends, don't go to a bottle. Don't go to a pill. It will not help you. It will not help you. The testimony of Scripture is clear. God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction so are you going to believe psychiatrists psychologists that want to give you some kind of a medicine to help your mind or are you going to believe scripture the God of all comfort the testimony of scripture is enough the testimony of scripture is enough but did you see uh, just last week or so, about a week or so ago, a big study came out and it, and it said that uh, the whole notion that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Did you see that report that said that's all garbage? That that's not even true? And yet we've got untold millions of people on these anti-psychotic drugs trying to fix their depression, trying to fix a chemical imbalance in the brain, which apparently doesn't even exist. You ever wondered why all these mass shooters, all of them, uh, practically all of them, are on these drugs? It messes you up. Don't want to go off on a tangent. But dear friends, Scripture. Scripture is our authority. Scripture tells us what is true. And what Scripture tells us is that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. I'm going to rest in God. I'm going to rest in His sovereignty. Not on some, what some lost pagan psychologist tries to tell me. We need a return to the Word of God. Do we believe it or do we not? So what refreshed him? The, re the God of all comfort, the renewal of fellowship with another brother, Titus, and, and the good news that Titus brought with him from Corinth. So Titus delivered this letter to the Corinthians, and it was received well it was received well there were still some problems that remained but by and large the Corinthians when they heard that letter read by Titus written by Paul it brought them to a place of repentance and when Paul met back up with Titus in God's providence somehow they met back up with one another and Titus brought that good news to Paul Paul I, led your, I read your letter Paul I read it to the Corinthians. And Paul, they repented, Paul. They repented. And that brought Paul comfort. The refreshing news from Titus. Verse 8. Paul writes, Verse 6, verse 7. My eyes are failing me. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort 
with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. And Paul says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, now watch this, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. Now, when you read that, it, it, almost, sounds, it almost sounds schizophrenic, doesn't it? He says, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but, but only for a little while. So what is going on here? Paul wrote this blistering letter, this painful letter of rebuke and correction to the Corinthians, gave it to Titus and sent him off to Corinth. And you get the sense in reading this, what Paul is saying here is that once he gave the letter to Titus and Titus left and Titus got out of view, once Titus got out of view and he was gone, then Paul started second-guessing himself. He started second-guessing himself. Did I do the right thing? Did I say the right things in my letter? Was it, was it too harsh? Was I too sarcastic? Was I too, was I too mean? Was I too angry in my letter? And how are the Corinthians going to receive it? And, you know, did I do the right thing? Maybe I shouldn't have written the letter. Maybe I shouldn't have sent Titus. That's what he was going through. That's what he was going through in verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but, but only for a little while. Have you ever had to write a letter or an email, probably as the case is nowadays, have you ever had to write an email to someone for whom you care deeply, but you know that person is some, in some serious sin? You know they are injuring themselves, they are injuring, their, their, uh, they are injuring others by their sin, they're grieving God. Have you ever had to write an email to confront someone in that sin? And so you write them this letter, a letter of correction, a letter of rebuke, laced with love, hopefully as well, but nonetheless confrontation. And then you read it, and you read it again, and you're like, okay. I'm just going to hit send. And you click, and the email's gone. And then after it's gone, you think, what have I done? <laughs> you ever been there? That's what Paul was going through. What have I done? That's what he was wrestling with. Did I do the right thing? But after a while, after his emotion subsided, then what happened? His theology kicked in. His theology kicked in. And Paul realized and he knew that he had done the right thing because confronting someone in their sin is always the right thing to do. Confronting someone in his or her sin is always the right thing to do. The most loving thing we can do for someone when we see that they are in sin, when we see that they are uh, in some kind of even error or heresy, the most loving thing we can do is to tell them the truth. If you truly love someone, love them enough to tell them the truth. The most hateful thing we can do is to see someone who is in sin and say nothing. See someone who is in heresy and say nothing. If we love people, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. It is not up to us how that truth is received, but it is up to us to communicate it. And so once Paul's emotions subsided and he kind of collected his thoughts and took a deep breath, his theology kicked in and he knew that he had indeed done the right thing. Paul had no idea how the letter was going to be received when he gave it to Titus and Titus left. He had no idea, but he knew he had done the right thing. Doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. And at least, at least, you will have the blessing of having a clear conscience. Knowing that you've done the right thing before God, 
that you've pleased God, you'll have the blessing of having a clear conscience. It may not be received in the way in which you hope, but you'll have the blessing of a clear conscience before God. This was tough love on the part of the Apostle Paul. He could have allowed them to stay in their sin, stay in their rebellion. He could have tried to just be nice to them, you know, try to win them over by being their pal, their buddy, but that would have served them no good. That would have profited them nothing. Now, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says that he rejoices, not that they were made sorrowful in and of itself, but that they were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And Paul here in these two verses talks about the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. And dear friends, the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell. It is the difference between a true Christian and a false professor in Christ. Paul says that a worldly sorrow leads to death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. And dear friends, everybody has that. Everybody has a guilty conscience. You don't have to teach someone that it's wrong to lie. That's why people tell other lies to cover up their lies. You don't have to teach someone that it's wrong to steal. People instinctively know that. That's why they try to cover it up and get away with it. So everybody has a guilty conscience. But if it's just a guilty conscience and nothing more, that is a worldly sorrow that leads to death, eternal death. A worldly sorrow is the sorrow over sin that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me and so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. And so we try to cover our tracks. We try to keep things secret. If people wouldn't know what I'm doing on the side, if my spouse wouldn't know that I'm talking to this other lady on the side. If my spouse wouldn't know what I'm looking at on the computer, if I could get away with it, if nobody would know about it, I'd go right back to it. That is a worldly sorrow, and a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. Because a worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow is nothing more than trying to protect ourselves while at the same time enjoying the sins that we secretly love. And if we could get away with it, we would go to it. Because that's what we really want. If that is the kind of sorrow that you have over your sin. If your conscience is guilty of only, if, if you only have a guilty conscience and you have no other desire than to just protect yourself and to keep yourself from the consequences of sin, then you need to do some serious self-examination to see if you're truly in the faith. Because if that's all you have, you're not a Christian. And I can say that on the authority of God's Word. A guilty conscience, a worldly sorrow, everybody's got that. But there's another kind of sorrow over sin. Paul speaks of a godly sorrow. 
Paul says this godly sorrow over sin leads to repentance unto salvation. What is this godly sorrow? This godly sorrow over sin, this is a sorrow over sin that is not horizontal like we just talked about, but rather this sorrow, a godly sorrow, is vertical. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And we do not want to grieve Him. We do not want to grieve His person. He has been so good, so kind, so generous, so faithful, so merciful to us. And we don't want to grieve Him because we know that our sin grieves God and we don't want to grieve God. That is a godly sorrow over sin. And Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. A godly sorrow is in the, it is in the sphere, if you will, of genuine salvation, the new birth. That is a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that David had in Psalm chapter 51. You remember that David had committed egregious sin. He saw Bathsheba, Bathsheba bathing, and he wanted her. And so he had her brought in, had adultery, committed adultery with her. And then David committed murder to cover up his adultery. And then God used Nathan, his friend Nathan. And Nathan came to David and he confronted David. Second Samuel chapter 12, he confronted David and he pointed his finger at him and he said, you are the man. You are the man. And God used that to break David and to grant to him a godly sorrow. And David cried out in Psalm chapter 51. He said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, O Lord, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David had no excuses. He was broken before God. He wept over his sin. And that is a godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance unto salvation. What kind of sorrow do you have over your sin? A worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow? The difference is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell. The Apostle Paul says... He said, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Not suffer loss in anything through us. Think of the blessing that the Corinthians had in their relationship with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, no less, had preached to them the gospel started a church there, was maturing them, discipling them. I mean, these folks were being discipled by Paul. That's a, that's a pretty good deal right there. But the Corinthians, by turning against Paul, by listening to the lies of the false apostles, they turned against Paul and they cut off that relationship with the apostle Paul. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to suffer loss through us. In other words, I don't want you to lose the benefits, to lose the the spiritual blessings that you have in me as an apostle. But you're cutting yourself off from me. You're suffering loss through us. This is this is a broken relationship between believers. There were some real believers in the church of Corinth. There were some false believers too. A lot of them. But there were some real believers. And for a season, even the real believers had followed after the lies of the false apostles. And that relationship that these real believers had with the Apostle Paul had been broken, had been severed by their sin. By their sin. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to suffer loss through us. 
you're going to suffer loss if you continue in your sin. Because we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Paul says, do not even eat with a brother who is a reviler, covetous, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. These people in Corinth, they claimed to be Christians, and yet they were in this egregious sin. And as long as they are in egregious sin and yet claim the name of Christ, then Paul could have no fellowship with them. They chose to sever that relationship. And Paul wanted them to realize their sin and come to a place of true repentance. Verse 11. Verse 11. Let's look at the fruit of this godly sorrow. Paul says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now watch this list. He says, What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 is the most detailed explanation we have of what true repentance looks like. This is the most detailed explanation of genuine biblical repentance. Most of us have heard that the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. You know, metanoia means to change your mind. That is what that word means, and that is the word for repentance. But the full definition of a word is not always determined simply by the dictionary or the lexicon. The full definition of a term, biblical term, is determined by the context, and it is the Holy Spirit of God who determines the context. So it is the Holy Spirit of God who determines the full meaning of a word, not just the dictionary or the lexicon. And when we look at repentance in Scripture, real repentance bears real fruit. Real repentance bears real tangible fruit. And this is the most detailed account we have of what real repentance looks like. The fruit of this godly sorrow. We see here seven characteristics of true repentance listed in this verse. Seven characteristics of true repentance listed in this verse. And when you, when you look at verse 11, he says, For behold, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Paul is just bubbling with joy because he was so worried, so grieved, so concerned, so uncertain about how the Corinthians would receive that letter. But after all this time passed and he finally met back up with Titus and Titus came to him and said, Paul, Paul, I read the letter to him, Paul, and Paul, they repented. They repented, Paul. And I don't know this, the text doesn't say this, but if you'll permit me just a little bit of sanctified speculation here. In my mind's eye, I can kind of see Paul meeting up with Titus and Paul getting this good news from Titus. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Paul just dropped to his knees in relief and he cried tears of joy because he loved these people so much. And he wanted so much for them to be brought to true repentance. And they were. God used that painful letter to bring them to true repentance. Now let's look at what this looks like. Paul says, number one, first characteristic, what earnestness. Paul says, what earnestness. The Corinthians, by their response, showed that they were eager for righteousness. Before they had been indifferent toward Paul, they had been indifferent toward sin, but now that indifference has been replaced with eagerness for restoration of their relationship with Paul and with Christ. They were earnest to have this relationship restored. And then Paul says, what vindication of yourselves. The word here, vindication, is the word apologian, and it literally means a a speech in defense. A speech in defense. It's the same word from which we derive our word apologetics, a a rational reason defense of the faith. The Corinthians had a strong desire to clear their names. They wanted to vindicate themselves. Now, when you read vindicate themselves, don't think they were trying to defend themselves. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, the opposite of that. 
The Corinthians had been brought to a place where they realized that they were in sin, they were in serious sin, and now the Corinthians wanted to make it right. Whereas before they had been known for their sins, now, now they wanted to be known for their repentance. And they wanted to vindicate themselves by demonstrating genuine repentance. They wanted a godly reputation. They wanted everyone who previously knew of their sin now to know of their true repentance. And then Paul says, what indignation, indignation, agonictason in the Greek. It's a strong opposition, a displeasure, an anger. What indignation. The Corinthians were indignant. They were angry. Wait, wait, wait. They were angry. I thought they repented. They were angry at their sin. They were angry at their sin. That's what they were angry at. They hated their sin. They hated that they had brought heartache to the Apostle Paul and they had brought reproach upon the name of Christ. They hated their sin. If you will, turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to... Ephesians 4 verse 26. This is a familiar verse. If you didn't know the reference off the top of your head, you'll know it when we read it. Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a familiar verse, right? Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, the way we have most often heard this verse taught is basically something like this. If you have a fight with your husband or your wife, you have a little marital spat, a little tiff, you get angry at each other, it's okay to be angry, just don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so if you have a little argument, then, then kiss and make up before you go to bed. Don't go to bed angry at night, don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know, make up before you go to bed. Now I won't argue that that's that's pretty good marital advice. But I don't think that that's what that verse is talking about. I want to give you a new way of looking at this verse. Because I don't think that's at all what it's talking about. Because if it was, well, let me get to it. Paul says, be angry. Now, what is this anger? Now, in the Greek, this be angry, that's actually a command. It's actually in the imperative voice. So in other words, it's like, it's the same as you would tell a child, clean up your room. Paul's saying, be angry, yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So whatever this anger is, it cannot inherently be sinful. It can't be sinful in and of itself. Otherwise, Paul would not give a command to actually be angry. So it can't be inherently sinful if it's a command to be angry. So if it's not sinful, why does it matter whether or not the sun goes down on it? I mean, if it's not sinful, let the sun go down on that anger. If it's not sinful, let the sun come back up in the morning, go down the next night again, if it's not sinful. So why does Paul say be angry and in your English Bibles, your translation likely says, be angry and yet do not sin. Don't sin. Those words, and yet, you might notice that they're italicized. In other words, they're not really in the Greek. They're not in the original manuscripts. So in other words, what Paul is saying, be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, when we hear that phrase, don't let the sun go down, what Old Testament event does that kind of bring images up in your mind about? Remember, what, what Old Testament story? Don't let the sun go down. The long day of Joshua, right? The long day of Joshua. 
And as long as the sun stood still, then Joshua and the Israelites were victorious. Don't let the sun go down. They were victorious when the sun stood still. Let me put this together. I would submit to you that the object of anger in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 is not your wife, it's not your husband. The object of anger is sin. The object of anger is sin. What Paul is saying, be angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. Don't you dare let the sun go down on that anger. There's two major words in the Greek for anger. One of them is orge. The other is thumos. Orge is a settled disposition of anger. A settled, lasting disposition of anger. Thumos is an explosive outburst of anger. That's thumos. So picture, picture a volcano. Since I'm from the States, I'll use a famous volcano in the States, Mount St. Helens. You've heard of that and blew its top back in 1980-something, 81. So you have this volcano, Mount St. Helens. Orge is the pool, the giant lake of lava that sits underneath Mount St. Helens. It's just always there. It's always there, always roiling, right? That's Orge. Thumas is the explosion. Thumas is what happened when it blew its top back in 1980-something. So which word do you think Paul uses here when he says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger? Orge or thumas? Orge. Orge. A settled disposition of anger. Paul is saying, be angry at your sin, stay angry at your sin, never stop being angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's what he's saying. Yeah, I think it's crystallized in the next verse. Look what he says in verse 27. And, so he connects verse 26 to what he says here in verse 27. And, do not give the devil an opportunity. That clinches it for me. When does the devil have an opportunity in our lives? When we become complacent against sin, right? That's when he has a foothold. That's when he gets opportunities in our life, when we're complacent about sin. Be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. The Corinthians were angry at their sin, and Paul commended them for it. What indignation you have. I've heard Paul Washer say that one of the surest signs you have a new relationship with the Savior is that you have a new relationship with sin. As Christians, we can and do stumble into sin, but we don't swim in it. We don't relish it. We don't enjoy it. When a lost person sins, a lost person can sin with reckless abandon and enjoy it. Have a good old time. Relish in it. Wallow in it. Because that's what lost people want. They want their sin. But a Christian, when we sin as Christians, we can't enjoy it. We can't relish in it. A Christian stumbles into sin, but a Christian does not swim in sin. A Christian does not relish sin. A Christian does not look for opportunities to sin. When we sin as Christians, it grieves us. It grieves us. And we should go to war against our sin. Do you have a new relationship with sin? If you have a new relationship with sin, that is a good indication. You have a true relationship with the Savior.
Paul says then, what fear, what fear you have. Fear of what? Fear of God. Fear of God. God is kind and he is gentle to be sure, but not, dear friends, in an unqualified sense. He is also holy and God hates sin. As Christians, we do not fear God in an eschatological sense. As a Christian, I don't fear the wrath of God. Now, I don't mean that arrogantly. I don't mean that I'm all that in a bag of chips and I'm just so spiritual that I don't. I don't, I don't fear the wrath of God because I know that the wrath of God has already been satisfied on my behalf. Christ has paid for it. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. So I don't fear God's wrath because Christ has taken that for me. But I still fear God. I still have an awe-filled, reverential fear of God. I have a respect for His holiness. And I fear Him as, as I am in, am in awe of Him, of my Creator. As Christians, we do are in our subject to the discipline of God. God will discipline us if we enter into a period of sin. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 is about. If you enter into a season of sin, God will discipline you. So we are subject to the discipline of God, but not to the wrath of God. But as Christians, we do fear Him. We have an all-filled, reverential respect for God. The lost have every reason to fear God's wrath, but not us as Christians. And then Paul says, what longing, what longing. The Corinthians long to see their relationship with Paul restored. They long for fellowship with Paul and with God. They wanted that reconciliation. May I say something here? Reconciliation. When, when genuine Christians find themselves at odds with each other and that relationship is severed, is, is broken, because, or at least strained because of sin on the part of at least one of them. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. It was not that the Apostle Paul had not forgiven the Corinthians. That's not what was holding up their reconciliation. He had forgiven them. But you can have forgiveness without reconciliation. You see, they could not be reconciled until the Corinthians admitted their sin and acknowledged it and owned it and repented from it. They couldn't be reconciled until the Corinthians did that. So it wasn't a lack of forgiveness on the part of the Apostle Paul. He had forgiven them. But until the Corinthians owned their sin, they could not have reconciliation. Does that make sense? You can have forgiveness without reconciliation, but you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. Okay. Paul continues, what zeal, what zeal. True zeal is the confluence of two extremely strong realities, love and hate. When love and hate meet and mix, that's zeal. The, the mixture of love and hatred. Psalm 69 verse 9 says this, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is the verse that Jesus quoted when he was cleansing the temple of the money changers. The Corinthians had zeal for God's holiness. They loved what God loved, and they hated what he hated. Zeal. As Christians, you and I are to love what God loves, and we are to hate what God hates. That's zeal. And the Corinthians had zeal in their repentance. What avenging of wrong, Paul says. Avenging of wrong. The wrong which the Corinthians wanted avenged was their own wrong, their own sin. They desired to make restitution for their sin. Dear friends, hear this. A truly repentant person has no interest in protecting or defending himself. 
A truly repentant person has no interest in protecting or defending himself. One of the ways you can tell if someone is truly repentant is whether or not they try to defend themselves. Yeah, I, I stole this stuff, but here's why I did it. Yeah, I, I, I lost my temper. I said a lot of things that I shouldn't have said, but here's why I said those things. Yeah, I was looking at stuff on the computer that I shouldn't have been looking, but, but here's why I did it. You know, I'm sorry for doing such and such against you, but let me tell you why I did it. Anytime you hear, I'm sorry for something but, whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. Whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. One of the marks of true repentance is when someone comes and they admit their sin, they own it, they make no excuses for it, they say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. That's what real repentance looks like. It's what a true godly sorrow looks like. A truly repentant person will not try to defend himself. Real repentance bears real fruit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist said, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul in Acts 26 before King Agrippa, he said, So King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men everywhere should repent and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Real repent, repentance looks like something. It has tangible fruit. Real repentance was demonstrated by Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Remember Zacchaeus was confronted by Christ and Zacchaeus said, tax collector, he said, if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay them back four times. He grieved over his sin and he wanted to make it right. That's what real repentance looks like. It bears real fruit. So you see, real repentance is far more than just intellectual assent. It's far more than just changing your mind. It bears real fruit. This is what real repentance looks like. This is the glory of God in repentance. Because, dear friends, this kind of repentance, what we've just seen described here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that is a repentance that only God can bring. Genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. And when God grants repentance, our minds are changed, yes, but everything about us is changed. Our hearts are changed. Our desires are changed. Our affections are changed. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. And we want to make it right, any of the wrongs that we've committed. We want to make it right. No excuses. That's what real repentance looks like. Soli Deo Gloria. All of the glory of that true repentance goes to God. Because it is something that only He can do. So as I close tonight, have you experienced this kind of repentance? Have you a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you make excuses of your sin or do you own your sin? Do you have a love for the truth? Do you have a love for the brethren, a love for God's church? These are all fruits in keeping with repentance. If you're not sure of where you are in your relationship with Christ tonight, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Cry out to Him. Confess your sins to Him. And if you have this true godly sorrow over your sin, if you come to Christ not only wanting a Savior from hell, but also wanting a Savior from sin, then He will save you. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He will save you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, repentance is so much more than what we've often been led to believe. 
We thank you for this beautiful description found in 2 Corinthians 7 of what true repentance looks like, of what owning one's sin and not making any excuses for it looks like, of how the relationship between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul was beautifully reconciled through true repentance. Father, if there are any here tonight who are lacking this kind of repentance, if there are any here tonight who have nothing but a worldly sorrow over their sin, they do not have a godly sorrow over their sin. Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit right now, I pray that he would break that person. I pray that he would grant to them this godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation. That you would call your lost sheep to yourself, all for the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.